Galatians chapter 2, if you have your Bibles, turn there. Um, This morning, um, I would really encourage you to, uh, the ushers are here, raise your hands if you don't have an outline. Um, Some of you, if you have the outline and you don't fill it in, you'll go back and say, holy cow, I wish I would have had that. Um, uh, I've probably told you before, you'll you'll find out who's the melancholies, there's, uh, I see that hand. Uh, We need some up here. Um, The melancholies will sell you the blanks after the service if you didn't get them because they get every last one. Um, And a few of them come up afterward and ask me for them, and I say I'm happy to sell them to you. Um, But uh, today we're going to deal in Galatians chapter 2 with um, the actual very foundation of the entire Christian faith. And uh, we can see that the apostles were already confused. Galatians would have been written by Paul really early. Josiah gave us some of the information last week about the, about the book written to the churches in Galatia. But um, this is really an amazing chapter. So look with me, starting in verse 1, chapter 2 of Galatians. Then after the interval of 14 years... So he'd been three years in the Arabian desert, the middle of nowhere, getting revelation from Christ right after he was converted. Directly, Jesus, that's where he says, I was able to see things from Jesus directly that not even angels get to see. And then God sent him for 14 years to be a staff member, one of five that are named in Acts chapter 13, um, to be, and he's actually the last one named of the five pastoral staff members at Antioch. That's when he says, so after 14 years of the revelation of Christ and then showing that he would be faithful in the church as the last guy on the masthead, God changed his name, could trust him, and now here he is talking about his gospel that he got from Jesus. Then after an interval of 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along also. And it was because of the revelation that I went up I submitted to them the gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, but I did so in private to those who were of reputation, really the apostles and James, the brother of Jesus, the leader of the Jerusalem church. So Peter, kind of the leader of the apostles, James, the brother of Jesus, kind of the lead pastor at Jerusalem First Church, if you will, okay? So that's who the people of reputation are here. Uh, For fear that I might be running or had run in vain... But not even Titus, who was with me, though he was a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. But it was because of the false brethren, look at this, who sneaked in to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, in order to bring us into bondage. But we did not yield in subjection to them for even an hour, that the truth of the gospel the truth of the gospel might remain with you. This passage begins with three really important theological concepts, right? Liberty, freedom, bondage. These are the words that are in here. And the gospel, right? And then look at verse 16. Jump down to 16. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ, 
that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, since by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. Or if you want to put that into more modern theological language for most of us, no flesh, no human, no one can be saved. No one by works of the law. So it's obvious, as Paul wrote to the Galatian churches, there were enormous struggles already going on between the law and the gospel and bondage and freedom and grace and salvation. There's, there's evidence here. There's big tug-of-wars coming on. We'll, in fact, see not just a tug-of-war. We're going to see a flat-out fistfight in just a minute. Um, uh, but notice even the apostles themselves are in the midst of this. Now, all of us know Peter. I love Peter because he was without clue and he learned really slowly. So it makes me feel, he makes me feel so much better, especially since he got to be the lead apostle. But look at verse 11 now. Watch this. Verse 11. But when Cephas, that, that, by the way, that's just the Greek for Peter, okay? So this is Peter, Cephas. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Some of you think that being in the church just means being nice. There are some things that you can't be nice over. Look at this. For prior to coming of certain men from James, right, lead pastor at Jerusalem First Church, where essentially everyone was a converted Jewish believer in Christ, right? So the anchor were essentially 100% Jewish, all right? So notice this, uh, for some men coming from James, we used to eat with the Gentiles. He used to, Peter. But when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. Notice they already had parties. The fist fight's always been there, and it's not going away till Jesus comes back. Okay, notice this. And the rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy with the result that even Barnabas, right? Encouraging Barnabas, great preacher of the gospel. Even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. But when I saw, they were not straightforward about what? The truth of the gospel. I said to Cephas, in the presence of all, if you being a Jew live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews. Whoa. The intensity of Paul's response to Peter shows us that everything was at stake here. The very gospel was on the line. Even Peter was sliding back into, you ready for this? He was sliding back into religion. Back into the concept of being saved by works, being justified by what we do. And this was such a big deal that look at the staggering statement that Paul ends this chapter with. Look with me at verse 21. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, listen everybody, if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. Let me give you the one that is up there, right? NIV, I love the way it says it. Christ died for nothing. And uh, my favorite translation of this, because I think they've really put it into incredible modern English, is in the voice translation. Look at this. It's up on the screen. If being right with God, write it in. Here's your blank. This may be your first blank. Probably is. This text is so important. I want you to get the blank. If being right with God depends on how we measure up to the law. You ready for that? 
If being right with God depends upon how we measure up to the law, then Christ's sacrifice on the cross was the most tragic waste in all of history. Do you realize that? If you can be Christian by doing what the Word says to do, then there was no need for Jesus to die. The cross was worthless if you don't need the cross to be saved. No wonder Paul was so cranked up. So here's the whole gospel at stake. Notice, in this confrontation, we see that they were already struggling with the true gospel probably somewhere about only about 15 years after Pentecost. It's incredible. Now, the, the good news is, of course, we've gotten this all figured out after 2,000 years, right? Um, You'd think we have it straight, but in fact, you know, the struggle and the understanding of law and grace related to salvation is ongoing around us all the time. The quandary that was plaguing the Galatians still drives us nuts today. And you know, it's even led many Bible teachers and many theologians into error. Now, I could spend hours covering the scriptures that underpin the next two theological truths. But, but even those of you who love this stuff do not want three hours on the law. Trust me. All right? So, so here is the essence. You ready for this? The essence of our quandary. Here's your blank. This is the essence of our quandary. Biblical truth number one. Because of grace, a true follower of Christ is no longer under the law. That's said over and over again in the, in the apostles' writings. Okay, those are true, who are true followers of Christ are no longer under the law. And truth number two, <laughs> a true follower of Christ will obey the law. What? Which one is it? Are true believers no longer under the law or will true believers obey the law? And the answer is yes. It's a quandary. It makes no sense. Both of these are underpinned by hours of teaching. Both of these precepts are true. Okay, so how's the quandary resolved? Well, to get there, we're going to do a little bit of theology today. Now, the good news is it's safe to preach some theology in June because you wouldn't be here if you didn't want to be. You wouldn't preach this on Easter. On Easter, you have to be here. Um, but you want to be here because it's 108 degrees today. So, um, so I'm going to talk for just a minute about antinomianism, which comes from Latin, and it simply means against the law. Okay, so don't be, it's in your notes, this spelling. Um, this is a heresy that emerged very early in the church, and here's the antinomian error. Write it in, here's your blank. In Christ, this is what the antinomians taught and still teach today by not the same name. In Christ, the law is abolished. What they say is, according to this view, Christ has come to do away with the law. They believe that the law is irrelevant to those who are now come in Christ. And of course, you know what they do? They go to all the texts that say, believer, you're, not, you're no longer under the law. And they highlight all of those. And then they go to all the ones that say, if you love me, you'll obey my commands. And they get white out and they white those out. Right? Now, of course, we don't do that. We're fully balanced here. But some people have the audacity to pay more attention to some biblical precepts than to others. I know none of you, but this is, you can tell your friends who are believers about this message today. Okay, so notice this. Let's compare antinomianism to the biblical truth. Here it is. Write it in. 
in Christ, the law is fulfilled. Everybody got that? It's not abolished by Jesus. It's fulfilled. And I suspect probably most of you in a a, a summer message probably know this, but you may not know that there's actually two very important different ways that that is true, that the law is fulfilled in Christ. The first one you'd be familiar with, and this is commonly taught, and it's amazing, write it in. Number one, Jesus fulfilled the law in history. Look at this text where Jesus is talking about himself at the end of Luke 24, 44. Now he said to them, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all the things that are written about me... By the way, (laughs) is there any reason why people have extreme views about Jesus? Well, do you know what he just said about the whole Bible? He says things like, yeah, I saw Satan fall. I saw Satan fall. Oh, when Abraham was there 2,000 years ago, now for us 4,000 years ago, I was already there. All of that Bible that talks about God is about me. So listen to this audacious statement. All the things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, meaning the whole Bible, the Old Testament at that point, must be fulfilled. And in fact, many of you know that Jesus of Nazareth actually met over 300 specific prophecies of the Old Testament to prove beyond any doubt that he is actually the Jewish Messiah. And I wish we had weeks to unpack this, but we don't. But let me give you this. Here's a key concept. If I were you, I would write this one and keep this in text because when you have people who are genuinely searching for Jesus, this is a statement that will help you. If they will challenge themselves with this statement, it is true and it's a great lead. Notice, here's the key concept. World history announces that Jesus is Lord. That's a keeper. World history announces that Jesus is Lord. And if you want to study it, if you want to go to the British Museum, museum, you will see time after time after time the amazing biblical history that unfolds pointing to Jesus as the Messiah. So the first way Jesus fulfilled the law was in history. But this is one that few of us have paid attention to. Number two, Jesus fulfills the law in us. This is a real key. To understand what this means, we need to begin with a common misunderstanding of one of the statements that Jesus made about the law. Look on the screen at Matthew chapter 5. Here he is in the Sermon on the Mount. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth... Listen to this. This this messes up a lot of Christians, right? Because we're no longer under the law. Look at this. Until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass away from the law until all is accomplished. So, my goodness, dude, I, for, I forgot how to keep leprosy off my handkerchief. Didn't you? Not one stroke has gone away. Oh, my goodness. Are we supposed to be reading more of the Old Testament? Well, the answer is yes, but we, I mean, we read none of the Old Testament now, typically. But th- this is, this is a, a, an amazing statement. So to be sure, you know why Jesus said the first part is he wanted to make sure nobody could think that he came to abolish the law. Antinomianism was out from the beginning with Jesus. But on the other hand, if we misunderstand this passage, we may think that the new covenant is still about the law. Jesus said it. None of the, nothing's going away from the law. 
And when we listen to passages like the Sermon on the Mount and we hear, not only are we not supposed to commit adultery, but we're not supposed to even want to, so many believers end up with a Christianity that's nothing more than the Old Testament on steroids. Because Jesus, I mean, you ready to hear the steroids? Jesus raised the bar higher. You know, have you ever called your brother Raka? No, you haven't. But I bet you've used the English term about him. And so have I. I mean, this amazing high ethical standard that Jesus preaches, he just ramps it up. Can you imagine? The Pharisees, as good as they are at being righteous, failed at the old covenant. Now Jesus comes and makes it much, much worse, much more stringent, and says, okay, now be holy like your Father in heaven is holy. In the same sermon. I don't know about you, but that's horrifying to me. So what's going on here? Why is this, this tension here? Uh, this is an amazing thing. We have, we have many people in the church who work and fail and work and fail and work and fail at trying to be like Jesus. Barna tells us for three decades, that's the typical American born-again believer. They just live just like the world. Oh, but at the end of the day, I ask for I'm sorry, and then I plan to do the same thing tomorrow. I mean, this, this concept of because we give up. So here's, a, here's what the new covenant isn't. These are important concepts. Now, with this first one, please don't, please don't have a stroke until I get to explain myself, okay? Um, look at this. The new covenant isn't. Jesus never intended for us to obey the law. Now, this needs the counterbalancing truth, but Jesus never intended for us to obey the law. If Jesus was coming to get people to obey the law, you know who would have been his team? The Pharisees. And the Pharisees actually didn't do too well in Jesus' book, did they? I mean, he called them things like, you know, uh, whitewashed walls and dead tombs. So Jesus does something here that's amazing. You ready for what the new covenant is? And this is a real key. Here's your blanks. Jesus, who is the fulfillment of the law, lives out that fulfillment in us. Everybody got that? This is the beginning of the resolving of the tension. I'm not under the law, but a true follower will obey Jesus. How? By giving up on me ever being able to do it and saying, Lord, if you'll come in with your spirit and live inside of me and you will be Christ is holiness in me, then you can live the fulfillment of everything that is pure by your power. But by the way, you know how much credit we get? Zero. So this is a, an amazing thing. So, so Paul now in Galatians 2 is saying, wait a second, Old Covenant, excuse me, New Covenant is not just Old Covenant 2.0. It's actually dramatically transformative of the Old Covenant. Okay, so look at, at the, the, we're going to look at the two huge differences between the Old and the New Covenant, okay? I, I told you you'd want your notes today. This is, um, some of you are having a nosebleed already from the, the high theology. My apologies. We will get to application and it will matter. Um, but look at this in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Look at this text, the, the differences between the Old Covenant and the New. For we are the temple of the living God. That was an astonishing statement by a Jewish teacher. For we are the temple of the living God. Just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them and I will be their God. 
and they shall be my people. So look at difference number one between Old and New Covenant. In the Old Covenant, here's your blank, the Spirit of God dwelt in a building. But in the New Covenant, the Spirit of God dwells in His people. So the first difference between the Old and the New Covenant is God has finally come home. He no longer lives in a building. Now we're God's dwelling place. We're the temple. We're the Holy of Holies. So think about this. For 20 centuries, the church has told the people in Judaism who still follow the Old Covenant that they have everything except they miss the main point. Right? Who missed the Jewish Messiah? (laughs) The main point. Those in the Old Covenant missed Jesus. The whole point of the Old Covenant. But are you ready for this? Are you ready for what's wrong with the religion of Christianity today? Here's your blank, write it in. Many Christians who have found the Messiah have missed the indwelling presence of the Messiah. And it is a disaster when you try to be Christian on your own. When you try to purify your mind in a day like today, it is hopeless. There is one holy one, one pure one, one who can make us like himself. So this is a real key. If you get the, oh yeah, I believe he was dead for three days and he was raised again and I believe Jesus is the Messiah and I believe he's my Savior and then you stop there at the religion of Christianity and do not allow his incredible Holy Spirit to fill you. It is a, it's worse than trying to be Jewish. It's harder because we have Jesus' ethical teaching. So, This is an amazing thing. See, the church isn't supposed to be the religion of Christ. We're supposed to be the body of Christ, indwelt by the Spirit, living. You ready for this? We're supposed to be Jesus alive, here, real, now, today, in this world. Indwelt by Jesus. So think about this. When the world hears us say that Jesus, this isn't really important. By the way, lots of you or lots of us in the church who talk about the exclusivity, the exclusive claims of Jesus, that he is the way, the truth, and the life. This is an important nuance that I hope you will learn from whenever you're talking to anyone about the exclusivity of Jesus. It's not what we have been uh, teaching. Notice, when the world hears us say that Jesus is the only way to salvation, what they hear us saying is that Jesus was the greatest among all of the moral teachers in history. See, they think We're making a religious comparison. What they think we're saying is that Christ had the highest ethics and highest moral standards. What they hear us saying, you ready what they hear us saying when we say Christ is the way? They hear us saying our way is better. Our teacher is better. Our religion is better. That's what they're hearing when they hear exclusivity. But what's unique about Christianity isn't that we follow the great moral teacher. You see, the only thing that's truly distinct about Christianity is the reality of God being present in the world by indwelling his followers to be Jesus in the world. It's the only difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant at its base. So if that isn't a reality, guess what? If they're not seeing Jesus when you claim to be a Christian— then we're just another clamoring voice among a myriad of competing worldviews, everyone trying to claim that their way is better. 
But here's the key. Christianity, properly understood, isn't better than the other religions. You ready for this? Christianity is completely different from all other religions. Christianity is absolutely unique. There's nothing like it because it's not a set of ethical creeds to strive for. It's not following a great moral teacher. Think about it this way. It's God come to earth to live in a human being who now is Jesus to the world. It's, there's no comparison. There's nothing like it. That's the uniqueness. Not my religion's better than yours. I like chocolate. You like vanilla. Chocolate's much better. That's what people think when you tug of war about religion. No, this is all about Jesus has come to live in me, and I have nothing to claim. In fact, my humility is that I have, I have nothing in the bank. I have, I'm bankrupt morally. I have nothing to offer, but look at him and what he's doing in me. See, so the world doesn't just hear the teachings of our teacher. They actually see our teacher in us. I want to ask you, is that your kind of Christianity? Or are you just trying to be good and be nice and working really hard at trying to look the part? But there's a flip side to this. When we're not living the expression of Jesus, is there any wonder why the world thinks of Christianity as just another option? So now let's look at a passage. Turn with me to Hebrews. You're in Galatians, so you're 90% of the way through, so you can't miss much. Now you go, start turning right. When you get to the five T's that are all together, you're almost there. Then comes Philemon. Then comes Hebrews. All right, Hebrews chapter 8. And this pulls out a huge amount of Old Testament text and makes an amazing point. All right, the text is up there. Um, Here we go, verse 6, chapter 8 of Hebrews. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he is the mediator of a better covenant, now comparing the old covenant and the new, by which has been enacted on better promises. For if the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second. For finding fault with them, he says, Behold, there are days coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers, but on that day I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. For, notice, they did not continue in my covenant, and I did not care for them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel After those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds, and I will write them upon their hearts, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Difference number two. See, in the old covenant, the law was something, you ready? Bunch of blanks here, sorry, I'll read it twice. Did Dana make it back in? Uh Uh-oh, I'm in trouble. Four blanks in the same sentence. Um, In the old covenant, the law was something that was imposed from the outside. Got it? Old covenant imposed from the outside. In the new covenant, the law is something that flows from inside. Look at what Hebrews 8 teaches. The antinomians are wrong. The law hasn't gone away. You ready for the essence between the two, old and new covenant? The law has changed locations. Now, it's an amazing thing. In the Old Covenant, the law was written on tablets of stone. They were in the Ark of the Covenant in the temple. The law was external. The law was in Jerusalem. The law was in that place. But look at the dramatic contrast. In the New Covenant, 
When the Spirit of Christ dwells in us, the law becomes internal, written on our hearts, and we become like Jesus from the inside out. So, time for application. I know many of you are ready for it. Some may be saying, well, this doesn't make any sense. I mean, basically, the apostles are kind of like trashing the law. If the law can't save us, and the law can't give us the incentive to follow it, then what in the world is the law good for? Application number one. The law forces me, this is really important for all of us, the law forces me to face my hopeless situation. That's where God has to get every last one of us. I'm hopeless. I have to be like Jesus, and I can't. The law forces me to face my hopeless situation, but then gives me hope. Okay, now as we begin to apply, I want us to look back at the curse of the law. Let's go back again to our hopeless quandary. This comes explicitly from the scripture. Write these texts in. You ready? Truth number one. Without holiness, no one will see God. Right out of the text. Without holiness, no one will see God. How you doing? We're in trouble. And truth number two, all our righteousness is as filthy rags. Holy cow. What are we going to do? The law has placed us in a hopeless situation. We have to be holy, but our best efforts of holiness are rags, utterly failing. (laughs) What's the way out? Where's the hope? Where's the good news? Well, Paul sank it right near the end of the chapter we've been in. Look at Galatians 2.20 with me. This is amazing. I have been crucified with Christ. And it's now no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. It's now no longer I who live. What's the answer? I didn't get holy. (laughs) I died. We'll talk about what that means, right? I am uh, now out of the way so that he lives his life in me. It's an amazing statement, right? And the life of faith that I, I now live I live in he, the son of God. So what it means to be crucified with Christ. Ready for this? Write this in. That's almost a bizarre theological picture, right? Here's what it means, folks. Write it in. If you don't get anything else today, get this one. When I surrender my will completely to him, the indwelling spirit of Christ lives his holiness in me. When I completely surrender... He lives his holiness in me because he has now, now has control. There's that ugly word, isn't it? You see, my inward turning, my self-centered will has finally been broken. When I surrender completely, he supplies the miracle of transformation. And this is the answer to our quandary. I can't be holy, but I have to be holy. And the resolution is, is when I allow the Holy Spirit to crucify my selfishness, Crucify my demand for my way. Any of these familiar to you? You want your own way? You demand your own way? I want it my way. I want my plans, my ideas, my attitudes, my way. The American way. There, we, have, we, have, we have platinum songs about I did it my way. It is the core of our culture. 
to do it my way. But when I finally say, no, not my will anymore. If you will do this in me, Lord, you have me to work through. It's an amazing thing. This is a key. Many people get to the end of Galatians chapter 2 and they say, here's the main point of Galatians chapter 2. Justification by faith. That salvation is all of grace. And that's a gigantic theological uh, doctrine that comes out of Galatians 2. But you know where it ends? It does not end with that being the primary uh, issue. The primary issue that ends Galatians 2 is the righteous one now comes and lives his righteousness through me. Application number two. For the spirit-filled believer, what used to be impossible has now become natural. This is amazing. This, folks, is the whole good news of the gospel. You can no more be like Christ after you become a Christian than you could before, and neither can I. That's what Paul was saying. You guys are, you guys, what? You were there at the resurrection. You were there at Pentecost, and now you're trying through the acts of the law to make yourself holy. Never going to happen. All right, so this is amazing. What was impossible is now natural. So here's what happened. We used to try hard to keep the law. Now the Holy Spirit has come and filled us with the law, and it's written on our hearts. So now by nature, we live like Christ. Now, by the way, I'm, deci- I'm describing a Christianity that many American Christians have never heard of. They just, oh yeah, I used to do that stuff and be that kind of person, and now I go to church, and I can even say the creeds, but this concept of, I'm dead, and now I'm free to live like Jesus, and everything about me is utterly different than it's ever been, and I can never take credit, because I tried to be good, and I knew I couldn't. This is an amazing gospel, my friend. So, let me illustrate this. Do we have to pass a law to force birds to fly? Do we have to pass a law to to mandate apple trees to produce apples? Think about this. They don't follow any rules. This is what birds and apple trees do naturally. They just do this naturally. And here's the point. It's no more difficult for the spirit-filled believer to live like Christ than it is for a bird to fly or an apple tree to produce fruits. But the question is, have you allowed him to fully fill you so that it's not your way anymore? Uh, But let me give you the really, and this is, we're getting close to wrapping it up. This, I think, is the, probably the single most powerful biblical analogy that we get for this concept, and I think it'll help you understand it. Um, I need to give you a brief lesson in respiratory physiology and Greek and Hebrew before we start. Did you know that if you ask the typical person, what's the worst symptom that a human can have? Most people will say, well, really severe pain. And that is absolutely not even close to the answer. The worst symptom a human being can have is air hunger. Air hunger. Desperate shortness of breath. If any of you have really bad asthma and ever ever ended up intubated with a tube on a ventilator in the ICU, it's an amazing thing. You, you tell someone who's had really bad pain and has had really bad shortness of breath, would you rather, okay, here's the scoop, you can fix one of them. Would you rather have the morphine and the fentanyl and the oxy or would you rather have air? And every time, 
they'll take the air. Every time. The reality is the desperate need to breathe is an astonishing spiritual analogy. You see, um, everyone says, relieve my need for the air. I'll take the pain, but give me the air. So, so let's look at a scriptural analogy now. It comes from the Hebrew and the Greek words for spirit, right? All of this is translated, we have a spirit. God breathed his spirit into us. Notice breathed. Um, and the Holy Spirit, of course, is that one, which is the breath of God. But notice, spirit in both the Hebrew and the Greek, spirit and breath are the same word. In the Hebrew, it is, fortunately, you're far enough away, I won't spit on you, is ruach, right? Um, it's one of those Hebrew words, which means breath of God. And in the Greek, it's pneuma, the breath of God. These are the same. They mean breath and they mean spirit. Okay, and so here is the key. This is an 800-pound truth from the Word. Since the Spirit of God is now dwelling in us, the very breath of God fills us, so the ruach, right, the pneuma, the very essence of God's life now wells up inside. And here's the physical analogy. When you hold your breath, there comes a point where the insatiable desire for air overcomes everything else, right? It becomes the only thing that matters. I could do this to you in 30 seconds, right? Some of you are in really good shape, 90 seconds. But none of you are getting past two minutes. You literally cannot. You know if you hold your breath long enough to pass out, which some of you did when you were two. Do you know what happens? As soon as your will goes away and you pass out, you start breathing again. We can't not breathe. It's literally impossible for us to do. So notice, this desperation for air in the physical realm is supposed to be the picture of our desperate need for the Spirit of God, the breath of God in our lives. So, here's the key concept. Write it in. You can see we're getting close. Look at this. Here's the analogy from air hunger. Our desperation for a breath of air in the physical realm is supposed to reflect our desperation for the breath, the Spirit of God in the spiritual realm. Now let's take a step back for just a second before we end. Later in Galatians chapter 5, we'll get an incredible description of the Spirit-filled life. Here it is, right? Here's the text. This is the fruit of the Spirit. This is the obvious inevitable what comes out if we're filled with his spirit, right? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. And most of us have that memorized, and a whole bunch of us do not know how that verse follows, how that verse ends. You know how verse 23 ends? It's so important, I want you to write it in. You ready for this? Against such things, there is no law. What? Can't you just hear the rest of the apostles saying, Paul, you can't teach that. You're going to get, there'll be, there'll be some nation across the water someday that'll have a Christianity that goes like this. God loves to forgive and I love to sin. We have a great relationship. <laughs> there, no law, yeehaw, school's out, I do what I want. No, what Paul is saying is, if the Spirit of God is living in you and Jesus is your whole life and my ways are gone and my will is gone and all that matters is him. You don't have to tell the bird to fly and you never, ever have to tell anyone, by the way, you better start breathing. You look blue. It just happens. So, Pastor Josiah, come on. Oh, you know what? 
Yeah, you can come on up, but hey, I did get all the blanks. Did we get all the blanks, melancholies? My set? All right. Yeah, I hear that witness. Um, uh, this is amazing. The Spirit, the very breath of God fills us. Come on up, team. We don't need external law that comes and says, you ready for this? Okay, now it's time to breathe. We don't need a law that says breathe like this, act like this, walk like this, talk like this, behave like this. Why? Because listen, church, when Jesus has truly filled us, we breathe and we act and we walk like Jesus because we can't do anything else. We have to breathe. Let me ask you, do you know Jesus like that? We now see this brilliance of the spirit breath analogy. When the spirit of God really fills somebody, trying to force them to walk like Jesus is just silly. (laughs) They breathe because they can't stop breathing. And some of you walked in today, some of you who look the best and act the best and are some of the most holy people by the world's standards, today you came in with a big weight on your shoulder of, yeah, but I haven't done this and I don't do this and I know my secrets. How am I going to fix that? And the reality is, Jesus is saying, I think it might have been Pastor Kurt 16 or 17 years ago when we were on staff together. I remember him preaching one day. He said, Jesus didn't come to make you good. He, made, he came to make you dead. And oh, that struggle of trying to be righteous. Anybody else ever here tried to be righteous and find out, found out you can't? Anybody ever get through the Sermon on the Mount and say, holy cow, I'm going to hell? You know what the beauty is? He is ready to say, if you will really give it up, you can be free. Not good, because nothing you do will be anything other than a filthy rag, as good as it is. But if you'll let me breathe in you, my spirit, then it will become like the eagle soaring. I'll do my righteousness in you. Stand with me. I'd like to finish with a couple of questions. Have you been trying to obey the law as an external set of rules? Have you taken on the religion of Christianity without taking on the essence? Have you been working hard at trying to be like Jesus, but Jesus hasn't really ever breathed the depth of who he is in you? So now you can say, I'm crucified with Christ, and it's not me who lives anymore. I look back on Dan trying to be holy, and it is a shambles. I'm crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me, and here comes the freedom. And now the life that I live by faith, I live by faith in the Son of God, who offered himself up for me, who was crucified for me. And now I live like Jesus. This morning, the altars are going to be open. They're open for those who want to hunger like you hunger for air. You want to hunger for Jesus just like you hunger for air. They're going to be open for those who are desperate to be freed from yourself and you're ready to surrender completely to his will. The altar are open for those who want your life in Christ to be as natural 
as it is for you to breathe. If you're desperate for the Spirit, desperate to be filled, desperate to be free, and if you're willing to be crucified with Christ, if you're willing for it no longer to be you who live, but Christ lives in you, then come as Pastor Josiah sings. Just come.